Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm bringing you the first part of a conference message titled, The Roots and Fruits of the New Apostolic Reformation. This was recorded back in 2008. In it, Bob DeWay is going to give us some important background information about the New Apostolic Reformation. We feel this is important information for you to have in mind as we approach our next series, which will be Dutz Sheets' book, Intercessory Prayer. So here's Bob DeWay. Now we're going to talk about a movement that claims that the way God speaks to us today is through Latter-day Apostles and Prophets that he's raising up at the end of the age. So let's start with Ephesians 2.20, about the apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So this is a foundation that I believe was built once for all, the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, right? And that these apostles and prophets are the New Testament writers. The, the apostles that, that God, or that Jesus appointed, and prophets would be people that they assigned, that, that wrote the New Testament, and they're authoritative, and Jesus is the cornerstone. And that this is foundation is lasting for the entire church age. This isn't something that's being rebuilt. It's built once for all. Now let's go to Clement of Rome in 97 AD. This man was mentioned in Philippians 4 and verse 3. And he's a man who knew the apostle Paul and was a very early leader in Rome. In fact, the Catholic Church claims he was one of the popes. But let's see what Clement thought about leadership right after the time of the death of the apostles. And I'm going to quote from his epistle to the Corinthians. This is a scripture, by the way, but it gives us an insight of the thinking of the church in the very, very early times about apostles and prophets. Here's what he said, quote, The apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done so from God. Christ, therefore, was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments then were made in an orderly way according to the will of God. Having therefore received their orders, and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom was at hand. Now notice that he believed that the apostles had been appointed directly by Jesus Christ and they were eyewitnesses of the, of the resurrected Lord. This is one of the requirements for someone to have been an apostle. Then... They were having an issue in Corinth about who the correct elders were and deacons. Here's what it says. And thus, preaching through countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who would afterward believe. Now, one of the interesting issues when it comes to the Latter-day Apostles and Prophets is that the Bible gives instructions for the qualifications for elders in, in Titus 1, in 1 Timothy 3, and in Acts 20. And so we know what elders are supposed to look like and what their qualifications are. 
Now, let's assume that the belief of the New Apostolic Reformation, which we're going to be examining here today, is correct that there needs to be more apostles throughout church history. Here's the question. How come we have qualifications of elders so that they could continue to be appointed later in church history, but we don't have anything like that about apostles and prophets? There's no qualifications given because they didn't intend that they would continue to be. And so I say that the qualifications for prophets from, from, that we looked at this morning, Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 13, still hold, and that there are no more apostles after the death of the biblical ones. Their foundation was laid once for all. And the reason we're not given qualifications or any instructions about appointing future apostles or choosing future apostles is because there were not to be any. Clement did understand it in 97, and he knew Paul. He didn't believe there were going to be future apostles. Here's what he said. Our apostles also knew through our Lord Jesus Christ, and there would be strife on account of the office of the episcopate. For this reason, therefore, inasmuch as they had obtained a perfect foreknowledge of this, they appointed those ministers already mentioned, and afterwards gave instructions that when these should fall asleep, other approved men should succeed them. So the Catholic Church claims there's a succession of popes, but one of their own popes, who really wasn't a pope because they just claimed him for themselves, he didn't know himself to be an apostle or a pope, just a bishop in Rome. This man, Clement, says that what would succeed would be elders, not apostles, elders. Then he writes on, Blessed are those presbyters who, having finished their course before now, have obtained a fruitful and perfect departure from this world. For they have no fear, lest anyone deprive them of the place now appointed them. But we see that ye have removed some men of excellent behavior from the ministry, which they fulfill blamelessly and with honor. So he's going after them for having removed qualified elders and having done so on wrong, uh, for wrong reasons. But he wasn't asserting apostolic authority. He was not saying, I'm the Pope in Rome, therefore you've got to do what I say. He was appealing to them based on the teaching of the biblical apostles. So we have a situation in 97 AD that I believe is what was intended to be. That you have elders, and by the way, he uses these terms the same way Paul does. He uses episkopos and presbyteros in, uh, interchangeably, elders and overseers. Clement uses the same terms Paul does, as we will see in, in Acts. In Acts 20, it says this, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called him the elders of the church. Now, addressing these same people, when you get down to verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The same group are presbyteros and episcopos, bishops and elders, or overseers and elders. It's the same people. It's not even, even the idea of a bishop over a city was an innovation that happened in church history, albeit an early one. And notice the role of these bishops and elders. To shepherd. Now there is the verb for the word pastor. Okay? to pastor the flock. So pastors, elders, and bishops were all the same group. 
in the early church in, in Acts chapter 20. Now let's go back to Clement of Rome. Ye therefore who laid the foundation of this sedition, in other words the rebels in Corinth, Corinth submit yourself to the presbyters. He didn't say submit yourself to me, the Pope in Rome. Submit to the presbyters. And receive correction so as to repent, bending the knees of your hearts, learn to be subject, laying aside the proud and arrogant self-confidence of your tongue, for it is better for you that you should occupy a humble but honorable place in the flock of Christ than that being highly exalted you should be cast out from the hope of his people. So I'm claiming that the early church had no inclination that there were supposed to be popes, apostles, or a succession of popes and apostles. This was an innovation that happened not too much later. It started with the Monopiscopate, which is one bishop over a city. And from Monopiscopate, uh, then later, because of history in the Roman Empire and the fact that Rome was a prominent place, the bishop of Rome began to start claiming greater authority than the bishops of the other cities. But even having a bishop over a city was not uh, what was taught in the Bible, in my opinion. So I'm very much against that form of pyramid church government. I do not believe in it. I do not believe it's biblical. Now let's see what happened. Now we're going to fast forward into church history here. And, and, and apostles came back on the scene through the Roman Catholic Church and the idea of the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome as the Apostle of Christ. And so this is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. This is what they believe right now. Quote, we teach and define that it is a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharge of the office of pastor and doctor of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church, by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed that his church should be endowed in defining doctrine regarding faith or morals, that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves and not from the consent of the church, irreformable. What the Catholic Church is claiming is this apostolic authority to bind the entire church in the name of God after the closing of the canon of Scripture. They have the power to create new doctrine just as much as Paul did, or Christ. That's, the, that's Catholic doctrine. All right? So they had authoritative apostles who spoke for God and binds all Christians to their teachings, or so they claim. Now, you know what happened in the Reformation? They rejected that out of hand. Let's go to the Reformation now. What did the Reformation say about statements like this one I just read to you? Well, they rejected it. The Reformers rejected all apostles but the biblical ones. And they taught Scripture alone, the priesthood of every believer, and that papal decrees and church traditions are not binding on believers. You can safely tell the Pope, sorry, you do not speak for God. I refuse to listen to you unless you tell something 
that's a valid implication and application of Scripture. I'm going to keep going back to my premise this whole day on this hearing from God. God speaks authoritatively, inerrantly, and bindingly only through Scripture. Scripture alone. And no prelate or bishop or even local pastor has the authority to bind you to anything that's not a legitimate interpretation and application and implication from the Scripture, a legitimate one. And so all these other things are a matter of liberty and we're not bound. You can read my articles on binding and loosing. We have a bunch of them. In fact, I think I've written three now in CIC. Now, so the Reformation brought us back to the Scripture alone, no hierarchy of spirituality, just simple officers that would be legitimate in the local church and the authority of Scripture. Now, in 1679, I'm tracing this ahead. I'm going to find out how how these other things came back into the church after the Reformation drove them out. The way new revelations came back into the church after the Reformation was through mysticism. Through mysticism. There were mystics and enthusiasts at the time of the Reformation, uh, and the Reformers rebuked them. Both Luther and Calvin had nothing good to say about enthusiasts. Enthusiasts were people who thought they were endowed immediately by God and they could have a mystical experience and, and hear from God directly. And the enthusiasts were enemies as far as Luther and Calvin were concerned. And they had descendants such as Jacob Bome, who was another mystic, and this mystical tradition developed within uh, Protestantism. And I'm fast-forwarding now to 1679. There was a mystic in England whose writings are still posted on the Internet by current Latter-day apostles and prophets, teachers and followers. And she predicts that there's going to be some sort of a virgin church that would give birth and be the incarnation of Christ at the end of the church age. Here's what it says. Now, this is by, from a document by the Theosophical Society. Uh, and that is a word that's been in church history and has to do with the word God and wisdom. They, they believe they can directly and immediately gain wisdom from God, not through the scriptures. So they were theosophists, and they had a society called the Philadelphian Society. The Philadelphian Society was based on a scheme of church history whereby God was supposedly re, uh, restoring things, and Philadelphia in the church in the Revelation had nothing wrong with it. So she claimed she was going to be in this pure virgin church with nothing wrong, thus the Philadelphian church. Let me recount some of her prophecies. Jane Lead. This was, uh, I don't know, I think about 69 or 70 of them. Of the stem of David, a virgin church which had known nothing of man or of human constitution is yet to be born. And if it be yet to be born, then it will require some considerable time before it gets out of its minority and arrives to full and mature age. The birth of this virgin church was visionally typified to St. John by the great wonder in heaven bringing forth her firstborn that was caught up to the throne of God. This is an allusion to Revelation 12. And these uh, people and these movements have gone to Revelation 12 which uh, and allegorized it to mean that this many-membered man-child is going to be born, is going to be a perfected church at the end of the age. 
It's a very strange interpretation, but that's what they do. Okay? Rather than, by the way, the man-child was the Messiah. In, in uh, the actual meaning of Revelation 12, is the Messiah, but they, they say the church, rather than Jesus coming back for the church, the church is going to be God incarnate on the earth. In other words, the church becomes a many-membered man-child that becomes like God on earth through the church. For as a virgin woman brought forth Christ after the flesh, so likewise a virgin woman is designed by God to bring forth the firstborn after the Spirit, who shall be filled with the Holy Ghost and power. The virgin that is hereto designed must be as of a pure spirit, so also of a clarified body, and all over impregnated with the Holy Ghost. This is terminology I've heard in my lifetime. This church so brought forth and signed with the mark of the divine name that it shall be adorned with miraculous gifts and powers beyond whatever yet hath been. Now notice this was 1679. They were already claiming that there's going to be a church that does greater miracles than anybody ever did in the book of Acts or that Jesus ever did. This is a claim that is still being made today by the Latter-day Apostles. And they're undaunted by the fact that it never happens. That doesn't even slow them down. They just keep making the claim. We're going to have greater miracles than Jesus did. Another few points, and then we'll go on to the latter rain movement. This Catholic and anointed church must be perfectly holy, as Christ himself is holy, so that it may worthily bear the name of the Lord our holiness and the Lord our righteousness. That's going to be the church. We're going to bear this name. We're going to be perfectly holy and sinless. 24. Until there be such a church made ready upon the earth, so holy, so Catholic, so anointed, that is without all spot or wrinkle, and that is adorned as a bride to meet her bridegroom, Christ will not personally descend to solemnize this marriage and present the same to the Father. So this will be consistently taught by people in this uh, movement. They say Jesus is held in the heavens until the church is perfected on the earth. Absolutely. I kid you not, and there are a lot of people believing this, and C. Peter Wagner says the people that believe this are the biggest movement in the church in the world today. And I'll show you that he endorses these ideas as we go on. So this was 1679. I got an email from somebody. I'm trying to link this together because I don't know how it fast-forwarded. How did it get from 1679 to 1948 with the latter rain? And somebody sent me an email and said, well, at least in the 19th century, this uh, Madame uh, Blavatsky may have been the theosophist of note that carried these ideas along. But I don't have that in this lecture. Joel 2.23. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain. Now this was literal rain that happened in the agricultural uh, calendar year of Israel. And all Joel was saying is that God had blessed Israel with the rains they needed for their crops. That in the spring they had the rains so that the seeds would germinate, and the, later in the fall they had the, the rains so that you'd get a bountiful crop. Okay? And what happened was that some people in the early days of the Pentecostal movement allegorized this to mean stages in the church that the early rain was allegory excuse me the early rain was allegorically 
referring to the book of Acts, and the latter reign allegorically referring to the church at the end of the age. So they came up with the same schema that at the end of the age, we're going to have a latter reign that's going to make the church greater than it ever was any time in its history. Now here is a little a slide that kind of tells some of the principles. I can't give a full-blown uh, lecture on the teachings of every one of the people that were involved with this. There would not be enough time, but I want you to know who they are. There was a guy by the name of David Wesley Myland who in 1910, apparently was the first one to use this latter rain allegorical schema. But uh, Myland was not a latter rain like 1948. He was a Pentecostal who thought that the gift of tongues coming back into the church was a sign of the latter rain. And he was more concerned about the gift of tongues in the Pentecostal revival than this more elaborate scheme that came into existence with the latter rain movement. So, and that's, by the way, the reason the 1948 version is called the new order of the latter rain. They wanted, it was new compared to that of Myland and people of his era. In 1948, in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, there was a revival, uh, and one of the guys that was a principal, and that was a guy by the name of George Houghton, and they had heard about William Branham, who I mentioned briefly, briefly this morning, and they had a revival, and that ushered into what became known as the Latter Rain Movement. William Branham was a man with some very strange uh, ideas and doctrines who supposedly was so powerful that he, he's probably considered the most powerful prophet to arise in the latter part of church history. But the problem is he was a Jesus-only Pentecostal who rejected the doctrine of the Trinity. He claimed that he got everything that he did from an angel. There was an angel who would have, that he saw that other people didn't, and when that angel was there, he could gain all these revelations and uh, Ern Baxter, who used to travel with him uh, for years, claimed that when this William Branham got words of knowledge, now their definition of a word of knowledge is that Branham could tell you things about yourself that he had, had no way of knowing. He could tell you your mother's maiden name and uh, what disease you have and what problem. And they claim he was 100% accurate. But he failed the test of Deuteronomy 13 because he taught out God we don't know. Plus, those aren't legitimate words of knowledge. Those are things the psychic readers can do. Psychic readers are able to do the same thing that he did. But he was just better than everybody and was also a healing evangelist at that time in church history. Another guy that was important was Franklin Hall who wrote a book about atomic power with God through prayer and fasting. That was very influential. George Warnock wrote a book called The Feast of Tabernacles that I'm going to quote from to show that he believed the same things that this Jane Lead taught. But in 1949, the Assemblies of God, which was a denomination, a Pentecostal denomination that had rejected some of the more extreme things. They rejected Jesus-only Pentecostalism. They held to doctrines that would be almost indistinguishable from other early evangelical denominations like Christian and Missionary Alliance. In fact, when I was at uh, North Central Bible College in 19, early 1970s, my theology teachers said we believe almost the same things that the Christian Missionary Alliance believes. The only difference would be this distinctive idea that tongues is the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But they held to 
doctrines that would be of almost similar to other evangelicals of the time. And they officially rejected the latter rain movement. They lost some pastors and, and a lot of uh, churches to it, and they rejected it officially. Now, when I went to Bible college, my teachers were old enough to have been around during the latter rain movement. My teachers were men like John Phillips, for example. And they told us this, and I remember it clearly. There are no new revelations. And they were saying that because that was the claim of the latter rain movement. They said, we reject that. And we do not accept anybody who claims to be an apostle or a prophet. In fact, the president of our Bible college got up in chapel, and I still remember this. He said, we are a non-profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, organization. So if you're a prophet, don't bother coming around here. We will not listen to you. But unfortunately, the, these stalwarts of the faith passed from the scene of history, and some of, this, some of the stuff that's gone, gone on in the latter rain and then later the charismatic had come back in to the assemblies of God and somehow the door got left open. Now let's talk about this George Warnock. George Warnock predicted a perfected church in his book, The Feast of Tabernacles. You can read this book online. It's all online published if you want. He's still alive. He's in his 90s, this George Warnock. But he wrote this for the latter rain movement. And let me quote him. How thankful we are, therefore, that God is revealing the pattern of perfection. The ascension gifts, by the way, that means apostles and prophets, the fivefold ministry. That was their distinctive idea. This is from Ephesians. The ascension gifts, the ministries in the body of Christ, these are the means of perfecting the saints. And as we have read, they are to remain in the church until we all come into the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man. This is, this is latter rain doctrine, pure and simple. Pure and simple and straightforward. At least they're understandable, unlike the emerging church. Um, they're saying that when it says that God has given apostles and prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, until the, we come to the perfect man, that that means, interpreted, that the church has to be perfected in history before Jesus can come back. Just like Jane Leeds said, and, and the reason the church hasn't been perfected in history is because we only had three of the five gifts. We forgot about the apostles and prophets. So you bring back the apostles and prophets, then the church is going to be perfected in history and Jesus is going to be held in the heavens until. That's their basic teaching. Now there's some more that goes with this, and I want to show you this because I'm going to show you this. All of this is around today, and it's all coming back, and, and has come back, and it's being promoted by people like C. Peter Wagner, who's very highly esteemed. Now, more George Warnock from the Feast of Tabernacles. Quote, Joel's prophecy, therefore, speaks of Pentecost, but it goes on to embrace the fullness of Pentecost, even the Feast of Tabernacles. See, he uses a scheme of church history based on the feasts of Israel. And Tabernacles is the one that they're looking forward to. So that's what his, his theory is, that God's going to do something that will be the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the church age, well, during the church age. 
God did give the former reign moderately in the Pentecostal age, extending from the early church until now, but here is something very unusual. Right here in the first month of the agricultural year, God has promised to do something most unusual, for he would give not only the former rain, which belongs to that month, but he would give the former rain and the latter rain combined. So in other words, he's going to take both rains and put them together, the greater miracles, greater power, greater Holy Spirit anointing, greater apostles, and he's going to dump it all on the church right at the end of the age, and we're going to have the greatest time that's ever existed, and people are going to become the many-membered man-child, the perfected Christ incarnate on the earth, Jesus stuck in heaven. You don't look too excited about this. Doesn't that sound exciting? <laughs> I think you don't, you're like me. You don't believe that this, these claims have any a semblance of possibility of reality or that they're biblical. Here's what he says. Ken, uh, again, George Wardock, Feast of Tabernacles, allegorizes the book of Joel, allegorizes the feast, allegorizes everything. Can we not see from this what God has promised his people in this great hour? Not only the fullness of a great and glorious harvest as in Pentecost, and not only the wonderful harvest of tabernacles, the feast of the ingathering, but all the glory and power of the early church combined with all the glory and power which rightly belongs to the triumphant church of the last days and all her former glory combined with all her latter glory. Glory, glory, and more glory. We are going to be it, the glorified church and the glorified saints. Then he says uh, in, in this book, Oh, the immensity of these words. And what, it, and what is more, Christ is going to remain right where he is, at God's right hand, until there shall arise a group of overcomers who shall conquer over all of God's enemies. And they include death, the last enemy of death. They believe that we're going to conquer death before Christ returns. That's the manifested sons. Okay, so we're going to conquer all of God's enemies. Now, look at what he says about us. And this is typical of this movement. They think we are worthless and pathetic. Any ordinary Christian who doesn't join their movement is looked at with disdain and ridicule. We're the brunt of their jokes, and we're the stupid fools that, that God can't use because we just don't have what they have. So here's what he says. And the majority of Christians, brothers and sisters, that's you and me, are looking for a rapture at any moment when Christ is supposed to catch away a miserable, defeated, disease-ridden church. You are not worth Jesus returning for because you're not good enough. That's what elitist Christianity sounds like. They forget about the fact that they're just sinners. Here's some more, same theme. God says Christ is going to stay right where he is until all his enemies are brought under his feet. And his enemies include the last enemy with his death. There's this manifested sun doctrine. There must arise a group of overcomers who shall conquer and become absolutely victorious over all opposing forces of the world, the flesh, the devil, before this dispensation draws to a close. So we're going to defeat death now in church history. Not through the rapture. In the fullness of this new priesthood, we shall be completely glorified like unto Christ. 
But even as Christ began his priesthood on earth by interceding for his brethren, so let us begin even now to possess this glorious heritage in the spirit, the kingdom of God within. Where did we hear that before? These mystics. They all say the kingdom is inside us, and we're going to be this glorious priesthood. Jesus is stuck in heaven. We're doing it all for him. We are out of time for this episode. We'll be back next week with part two of this message titled The Roots and Fruits of the New Apostolic Reformation. We want to remind you that you can access this episode and many others as well as years worth of articles at the website cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to remind you all to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this has been Jessica Kramus and Bob DeWay. We'll see you next week.